Good afternoon. I'm George Prisbolowski, and welcome to the 14th of our series of Canadian Real Estate Forum webinars. We're especially pleased today to present an insightful conversation with another of our industry's respected presidents. These sessions are specifically focused on what are the leaders in the C-suite thinking at this time as they look forward in this unprecedented environment. Paul Finkbeiner oversees a global real estate platform of $27 billion in assets under management in Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Ireland. He works closely with these four regional offices to expand Great West White Coast real estate business by attracting third-party investors and continuing to grow his existing client base. Previously, Paul was president of GWL Advisors for 18 years. Under his leadership, he grew the company's real estate portfolio from $800 million in Canada to $17 billion and the U.S. as well. He has over 30 years of experience in the real estate industry and will speak to that today. The theme of these weekly thought leadership interviews is the potential impacts of COVID-19 on the Canadian real estate market. How can you prepare for current and future challenges? Paul will be interviewed by Aaron Cameron and Adam Fawadik, a First National Financial, Canada's largest non-bank lender. Over the last three years, they have also built Canada's largest and most popular commercial real estate podcast, having conducted over 100 interviews with women and men in the industry. A few comments on some logistical elements of the technology we're using today. Depending upon the depth of the discussion, there could be an opportunity for Paul to also respond to a few questions from viewers. You can type one in at any time during the webinar, click the Q&A button on the left-hand side of your screen, and hit the Submit button. To improve your viewing and listening experience, you can move your webcast windows around by dragging on the title bar or resize them by clicking on the lower right corner. At the bottom of your screen, you'll also find multiple application widgets. Today's session is being recorded and will be available for on-demand viewing. You'll be notified by email tomorrow with a link to the archive. Please pass the information along to other colleagues who are not able to join us today and watch this presentation. And with that, Aaron and Adam, the floor is now yours. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Thanks so much for that intro, George, and welcome, Paul. The usual format we have for these discussions is we spend about five minutes going through the interviewee's background, and then we jump into the meat of the conversation. But in this case, the interviewee's background is going to be a large chunk of the discussion today. As George alluded to, Paul's been at it for 30 years, has been through a number of recessions. So we really want to examine the survival strategies that Paul had getting through those recessions and how they might apply today and how we could all learn to you know, survive along with the, the lessons we learned from Paul. So, Paul, I want to thank you for coming on today. And we'll jump into just a chronology of your background, but we're going to take our time in it because I know you had a couple of jobs where the recession really impacted what you were doing. So let's go right back to the beginning. Yeah, sure. I guess where I'd like to start is more why real estate. So for me, I started out and I got an engineering degree and a master's in engineering. And I worked as an engineer for a couple of years. And then what I decided to do was to get into something where I combined, then I went and did an MBA. So I worked for the bank for a year. And then I decided that what I was trying to do is combine the engineering degree with the MBA. 
So I started in real estate and it was the first time that I actually really liked the job because I had tried being an engineer and I didn't find that that enjoyable, but I really liked real estate. And then what Adam is talking about is my first job was with a company called Trilee Shopping Centers. And I was the acquisition analyst for that group. And we were out there trying to buy large malls. And then the the real estate recession hit in about 89 and 1990. And I went from being a acquisitions analyst to be an assistant property manager. And I was happy to have a job. And I guess that's kind of for some of the people on the call. I know people have been furloughed and laid off. And what I find is when you go through the difficult times, you take any job you can get. And for me, it was learning to be an assistant property manager for a, a little while before something else came along. But I didn't have the luxury of saying, no, I don't want that job. So I guess my overall comment is these are difficult times that will pass. However, when it comes to opportunity, take you know any job you can get in real estate because it's going to be fun. So if we can go back to those, to that first job, what was the first sign that something was off in the market and how did you respond at the time? Well, I guess what was happening is pricing was getting pretty escalated, but <laughs> what really went on is my boss was being moved from Tri-Lee to Bramley. The two other people I was working with were let go. And I was told that if I wanted a job, it was an assistant property manager. So it just happens. And you know, for the next number of years in the real estate business, what we tried to do was survive. And we spent probably the next five years, or I spent the next five years of my career surviving. And it humbles you too. I mean, the whole thing about getting an education, it, a lot of cases opens doors for you, but it doesn't guarantee anything. And then when bad things happen, what I, I guess I'd say that I saw during those times, there were a lot of talented people that lost their job, but then came back and excelled. So during these times, like I said, it does pass. And in comparison to now, is there the same sense of us being in survival mode or is it something different right now in 2020? I'd say there's a lot of similarities. I guess the a couple things that happened. So after I was at Trilee, I got a job with Brookfield. And this was around the time Brookfield was going through workouts. And I, I use the expression that back in those days, Brookfield wasn't that cool. Brookfield's pretty cool right now. But what happened was we had office buildings in all the North American markets that had about a vacancy level of 25%. And the world was saying that the office market is dead and there will be no more development of office buildings for the next 10 years. And I also had a, the guy that hired me at one point at Brookfield came to me and said, you're a bright young guy. You should get out of the real estate industry because it's going nowhere for the next five to 10 years. My whole thing is I had tried engineering and I had tried banking and I didn't like either one of those. So I wanted to stick in the industry, but somebody who I respected was telling me to get out. And, you know, what, what I find is that this partly becomes what you do what you like. And if you like real estate, you got to stick with it. It will come back. And I've done very well in my career since being told to get out of the business. And I'm glad I didn't get out of the business. Definitely a good decision. And I don't want you to to speak badly of anybody, but why is Brookfield not considered cool back then? Well, we were doing workouts. I mean, uh, Brookfield had bought the old BCED portfolio. So that was um, Bell Canada Enterprises Development Corp. And almost all the real estate we had at that time 
the debt was higher than the value of the assets. So, you know, my experience was we were doing every deal we had, really the bank owned the, the real estate. We didn't. And I, I was doing um, the one asset that I remember very well was in St. Paul. And it was called the Minnesota World Trade Center. It should never have been built in St. Paul, but the building at one point was worth $120 million. And Principal Mutual had put a mortgage on it of 90. And I came in as an analyst and I was looking at the real estate and I said, well, I think the real estate's worth 25. It's not worth 90. It's not worth 120. It's worth 25. And so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to try and figure something out. And so the deal we cut with Principal Mutual is you own half the building. We own half the building. We'll put debt on it of 50 and we'll see where it goes, even though I thought the building was worth 25. So when I was at Brookfield, we were in the midst of solving a lot of problems. And the president at that time said, I'm amazed that we have this much real estate. But I'm even more amazed that we have debt against the real estate and that it's underwater. And we went asset by asset and figured it out and worked very hard during those days to survive. And we did. But in a lot of cases, even I I still remember when I went to Brookfield, I had a new boss and I said, you know, how do you feel about expense accounts? He goes, well, we're going bankrupt. So how do you feel about expense accounts? So that was my you know, Brookfield was a workout. It, 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 you know, it survived. In other places, they didn't survive. I'm sort of jump around a little bit, but you said something earlier that I, I just, I'm curious what the answer is. You kind of talked about, you know, your attraction to real estate and you even indicated, you know, a respectable individual advised you to leave and you didn't. Maybe just speak to why real estate. And maybe I, I, I'm almost like to see what your opinion was back then about real estate and why you stuck with it and why you wanted to get into it in the first place. And now, however many years forward, you have the same opinion about real estate or what's changed about your opinion about the industry. Okay. So originally what I liked about it, and it was really the people. So when I worked for Trilee Shopping Centers, um, I had a boss by the name of Catherine Steffen and a couple other folks in my department, and they were just good people. They were trying to look out for me. They were trying to help me. And in my previous experience, that wasn't the case. And so what I found was that it was also the tan, like how tangible real estate is. So when you do, I was in shopping centers then, but the whole idea is that you walk a shopping center, you get a feel for it. You get a feel for whether people are buying anything. And so, so my initial thing was I found banking to be a little standoffish. I found engineering was very good, but we were solving problems in some cases that a lot of people didn't care about. When you got into real estate, everyone has an opinion. Everyone has an opinion on why they like an office building. They have an opinion whether they like your shopping center. They don't really have an opinion whether they like industrial, but they have also an opinion what they like about an apartment building. So that's what appealed to me. And then I would say that as I've gone forward, the depth of the strength of the people is really good. Like there's just good quality people in the business. And that has continued. You mentioned doing workouts for Brookfield and Trizac. I can tell you from my vantage point in the industry, I'm not seeing a lot of that right now. But do you think we're going to see the ability to do workouts going forward or are we already at an inflection point? I think it's unlikely. The debt levels aren't anything like they used to be. There's a lot of prudent lenders. In most cases, people are only borrowing 50% of the value. But back in those days, I think the, the real issue related to the problems of the 
late 1980s and the early 90s was the amount of debt that was available. And that was another comment. It's really that there were so many, there were a lot of Japanese banks and a lot of banks lending money to developers just for the sake of lending them money. And so you really got into a whole different environment. We would see debt levels of 75 to 85 percent. People would be issuing corporate bonds. So all of a sudden you might have 85 percent debt levels. And really then when the value drops by 50 percent, you've got them. So I, I think it's unlikely. And then the other thing that's very different, I would say, from now to then is that there's a lot of money that wants alternatives and they want real estate, infrastructure, private equity. And these are popular asset classes going forward. So I would say even for me as a real estate executive, I haven't felt this popular in a long, long time, even though we're into COVID-19. It's still an asset class that long term people want to buy. So it's a good thing. Paul, I kind of took us off track a little bit. My last question. So let's get back on track. You were working at Brookfield, working out you know, different assets. And you kind of said you, you helped them, I guess, clearly. Where did you go from there? What was the next step in your career? And maybe lead us into the next, the next um, you know, recession. Yeah, so I guess the um, if people look back to what was part of the what I'll call the EDPER organization. So the old EDPER is the new Brookfield Asset Management. And I was really in that in those companies. So I kind of took I took a different job and I had to I left Brookfield to go to Trizec and I moved my family to Calgary. And Trizec was another workout. And that one was involving eventually was a by the name of Peter Monk and Jerry O'Connor, who were the ones that bought Trizac from out of bankruptcy. So I went from one workout to another work. And the reason I did that was to take a step up. I mean, I was always looking for the next opportunity. So what I wanted to do was get a promotion and get a, a better job. And so the thing was, it involved moving the family. And my son, I think at the time, was around two And what I learned from that, and this is where I'm sympathetic of anyone who moves and takes a new job, the job's got to work out, the wife's got to be happy, and the kids have to be happy. And if that doesn't happen, you're going to have a miserable employee. And so luckily for me, I had a great boss uh, by the name of Paul Kennedy, who was very supportive of me and what we were doing. But it was also difficult times. Again, same thing. We were Our assets were underwater. We had debt levels and it was a North American phenomenon. But my experience at Brookfield helped me with that. But eventually the company was sold to Peter Monk and Jerry O'Connor. And then the weird part about all of this is eventually, I'm pretty sure Brookfield bought a whole bunch of Trizac assets in the end. So it all came back to the same company. You'd be the perfect guy to rehire for that, given that you were familiar with all of them. You mentioned workouts at Trizac in uh, in Brookfield, and I I don't know your exact chronology, but I'm assuming those are during the the crash of the early 90s. But of course, there's also the the dot-com bubble bursting in 2008. Where do you think our current downturn is going to fall in the ranking of the worst ones? I know you speak to people who've been at it for a while that the early 90s is likely the worst one. Where do you think this will fall when it's all said and done in the rankings of difficulty getting through these recessions? Well, I guess in some ways, I think it's going to be more difficult from a personal level rather than a financial level. And I guess what I see is this is affecting, this is a a pandemic, it's a health issue, but also now we're getting into 
uh, mental health issues. And I just, I'm more sympathetic to the employee. I think this one's going to be very different because it's one thing to say, you know, I did a workout on a building, but it's another thing to say that I don't quite feel like I'm myself and I don't feel as connected to people and I want to come into the office, but I can't. So I think it's just very different and I don't know how to compare it. I would say that I think for the employee, it could be one of the hardest ones to do. And I know people are going stir crazy right now because they want to be back in the office, but it's very much unlike anything we've ever seen. My only comment is they do pass. There will be a vaccine at some point, I believe, and that we will get back to what used to be normal. Well, I want to follow that thread that you're on, but I want to get there in a bit because I want to keep your keep going on your background story. But I, I really want to hear about how you're managing and leading your staff through COVID. But first, let's just finish. Let's finish kind of where you ended up. So you moved to Calgary, moved your family. What was the last steps before you ended up at GWL? I mentioned Paul Kennedy was my boss at Trizec. And I guess I'd say that the end at Trizec was, it was hard on a lot of us because we had a, we had made a lot of good friends as executives. And as the company was purchased, a lot of those executives were let go because they weren't willing to move to the U.S. So we all kind of went our separate ways. And for people, some people may not know the individuals, but part of that executive team was Paul Kennedy Another part of that executive team was Michael Latimer, who just retired from Olmers. But Mike, Paul, and I, and a few other guys were good friends. And when everyone kind of got and went their separate ways because of no longer being wanted, we all resurfaced and jobs. And then because of what we went through, we maintained close friendships. So what happened was Kennedy joined Great West Life. And within about a month, he said, well, I'm going to do a search to hire Finkbeiner. And so what I learned is that you can do searches that make it look like you're actually uh, testing the marketplace. But in some cases, you really have an intent on who you want to hire. And so Paul hired me and it was really our personal connection. And we always got along. I think in maybe 25 years with Kennedy as a boss, he and I had one or two disagreements. The rest of the time we had fun. And we tried to make the job fun. And, you know, he's a, he and I are still friends today. And same thing with Michael Latimer. He and I are still friends today. And we went through some real difficult times. And that's a big part of the non-compensation value of a job for sure. And people don't always necessarily value it the way they should. So leading into your career at GWL, that would have carried you through into 2008. At the beginning of, the, of this webinar, George referenced growing 800 million to 17 billion how much of a, a dent in your growth, your upward growth trajectory did 2008 put into your GWL portfolio? Well, at the time, I guess, really, there was a, it was a financial crisis. And there was, I would say, the asset values went down for a short period of time and went right back up. So I think we were all very lucky that it kind of turned around as quickly as it did. It didn't really cause us to do anything different in the business. We just kind of hunkered down. And I guess that's the thing I find with when I reflect on it. I was also very pleased about how we approached it in terms of a crisis. So as an example, we felt we needed to sell assets, but we were going to sell assets in a disciplined way. And if we didn't get our value that we thought it was worth, we didn't sell. And we had some buildings we sold and some buildings we didn't. But the whole idea what I felt very proud of is that we stuck to a discipline. We found that if we were going to sell an asset, it was something we probably didn't want. And we knew that there was light at the end of the tunnel and that we would turn around. So 
2008 was just a very different market. And eventually we knew it was coming back. Just a reminder to our viewers, we'd like to do a bit of a, a Q&A. So if you have any questions, please put them in now. We'll get them queued up for at the end of the webinar. You know, Paul, I'm curious, over the time that you were leading or president of Great West Life, what was that investment thesis? What was the, what was the strategy? Maybe, hey, I'm curious about how it evolved over time, you know, 2008, 2009 aside, what was the strategy when you started and, and how did you end up growing it to great lengths and what were the thought processes? as you kind of evolved in your role? Yeah, so with Great West, what we came into was we had a a company that was very small and we just had great growth initiatives. And so there was something that we believed in, which was called a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. And what we wanted to do was grow the business as much as we could. And by focusing on buying bigger assets and by focusing on really growing the third-party account, BCIMC was a client of ours at the time, and we really tried to find assets for them that they really wanted. And so what I would say, the critical thing was really a desire to grow and putting in a business plan that would allow us to grow and not focusing on just one source of capital, but focusing on multiple sources of capital. The other thing that I would tell you we walked into with Great West at the time They had a fund that was made up a lot of small assets. And what we did was we said, and they were located in a lot of remote locations. So what we decided to do was to, you know, go big or go home. And so we were buying bigger assets and it just started as a, once we got successful, we continued to get more successful. And one of our initial BHAGs was to be 2 billion by 2K. And so we quickly did that. And then it just kept going. And we just hired a lot of people that believed in growth and were trying to do the right thing. So a lot of hard work, but a lot of fun along the way. Sorry to interrupt. Was it hard to get the board or corporate just to get everybody on board with that? Or was it you just kind of were given a mandate for growth and they just go and you were kind of given a free pass to go and do what you needed to do? Or was there some arm wrestling and struggles to get them to invest that much money into, into real estate? Well, I think what I find is because we were dealing with different pockets, we had to work really hard. But by having different pockets, it allows you to say, well, if you don't want it, we'll put it over here. If you don't want it, we'll put it over here. And that's where size and scale does start to matter. But what we found is that if if you only have one source of capital and they say no, then you're kind of stuck. By having multiple sources of capital, it allowed us to grow. And if one group didn't like it, we took it to another group. And then we tried to make sure there was no conflict between the various groups. And so the whole thing worked out very well. And I guess that was also a lesson learned from you know my days at the Trizex and the Brookfields of the world, because in some cases, they had one source of capital that was the capital markets. And when that dried up, you lost your job. So I've always liked the idea of having multiple sources of capital to buy real estate for and then have different mandates. And, and then it also protects your job as well. Paul, I think we're going to move into more of the, the present situation. I love having a beer with somebody who's been in real estate for a while and hearing the war stories and recessions and all, all the big wins of the past. But 
I'm going to jump into something more present. And I'm actually going to, when we lead into this now, I'm going to quote you at the Vancouver Real Estate Forum from a few years ago. I was in attendance. I spent all day listening to panelists talk about affordability, affordability, affordability. And then uh, you stood up at the closing panel and said, Vancouver is not supposed to be affordable. And so I, I've always wanted to ask you about that. I'm glad this presented the opportunity. So I was hoping you could you know, elaborate on that statement and how does Vancouver affordability fit into the, the current context where we are seeing some you know, rent and price decreases in that market? Yeah, so the um, where that comes from is for investing in all these Canadian markets for most of my career, every time we would try and invest in Vancouver, people go, it's different. And what different meant was if the cap rate was five in Toronto, it was three in Vancouver. And so then you'd look at yourself and say, well, I don't want to pay a three in Vancouver when I can get a five in Toronto. And then the market would go up. So I've just gotten used to that every time you look at Vancouver from in almost all asset classes, you've got to go at a lower cap rate than you thought or a higher price than you thought. And over time, it's proven out well because it's a, I think from a research standpoint, it's got a number of drivers of the economy and therefore it's a good long-term investment. But my comment is, I don't know how many times I heard it, Vancouver's different, which meant pay more and shut up. So, you know, so that leads me to a thought that is, I don't know, I don't know if there's a good answer here or not, but somebody like yourself has had so much experience over the years and you've looked at so many different asset classes across different geographies and you mentioned cap rates. I'm assuming you don't just look at cap rates. Like I've had exposure to other people that maybe have had some experience like yourself, but they just have this gut instinct to look for, find the value, the algorithm in your brain. Like how do you know what you're looking for? Sunny's out of the street. Is it always location, location, location? How do you how do you assess investment? Well, you, when you touched on the, um, well, it's funny when you mentioned the the story about location, location, location. So I remember I was married and I was applying for real estate jobs, and I went to my wife who was working at the bank at the time, and I said, "Could you get some letters typed up for me because I'm applying to a bunch of real estate jobs?" And she goes, "Okay." And at one point she phoned me and says, do you have this right? You've repeated location, location, location three times. And no, 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 that's, that's the real estate business. And I would tell you that that really does hold true still in a lot of ways. It is about the right location. The other thing that I find is when people approach me about an acquisition and they go, it's a really return. It really starts to tell me I'm probably going to like it. When they say it's got a lot of hair on it or it's a a little outside the box, I then take it with a grain of salt. So I've been a big believer that, you know, the downtowns continue to do well and certain downtowns do better than other downtowns. Certain malls continue to do well. And it also came from an experience I had with a guy in the U.S. as well that said, you know, when we came out of the recession in the early 90s, we were buying in Kansas City, New York, Denver, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes, if I could do it all over again, I'd just buy New York. I think New York's a great market and we should have just made, we would have made a lot more money if we just bought everything in New York. So overall, I still, you know, it's still the locational thing. The other comment I would make is what has impressed me about the real estate industry over the years is the quality of the people and then how creative they are in terms of repurposing real estate. And that's something I think that will come out of this, 
the pandemic and whatever downturn you want to call this is that we will figure out things to do with the real estate and it won't be a problem. So, so you mentioned uh, deals with a little, little hair on it, which would you know, likely describe a lot of the Alberta market currently. And we've got a handful of questions in the inbox from the audience about Alberta. So I'm going to roll it into to one big question here. The theme of the questions were around valuations. You know, are we at, at the lows now? Will there be investor appetite? And how do you see the turnaround in Alberta progressing? Well, I guess the thing I find is that there's still capital looking for real estate in Alberta. I mean, we have a fairly significant holding there. And we're not, you know, we're not looking to get out of it. I've been around the the Calgary markets, had its ups and downs, but I still find that there's capital that's willing to buy in these various markets. And I guess that's the just more the interesting thing. But I don't think everyone's abandoning in Alberta and the, you know, longer term, I believe it's going to come back. But for the time being, it doesn't look very good. But like I said, there's still a lot of capital that wants to take advantage. There's opportunistic capital that'll make a play on it. And at some number, you know, Things look good, but we've been in that market for a long time. I lived there and I've seen Calgary go through a number of cycles and this is not a good one, but I'm assuming we'll come out of it. Well, I'm curious then, you know, being a life insurance company, what kind of duration horizon are are you using for your investments? I mean, given you're always looking long-term, do you have a number in mind? Is it 20 years, 30 years, 50 years? Are you matching liabilities depending on the different buckets that you may be investing for? How does that conversation work? In some cases, we are matching to liabilities, but it's a very small part of our book is for the insurance company. And most of it's for pension funds. And I would say that they, you know, that's just a longer term investor. And I, I think there's a lot of similarities to what an insurance company wants and what a pension fund wants. And therefore, it is about the longer term. And that's that's also things that we discuss internally about an asset. Like I remember a building we bought where we, we really liked the building, but we felt that it would go down in value by 5% short term, but go up in value over 10 years. And we believed in the asset and we got it approved to do that deal. And I, it, was for a, it was for a pension fund client. What surprised us was it actually went up and didn't go down and then has continued to go up. And so, you know, a lot of the stuff that goes back to what we talked about earlier, the location part of this is something that is critical. It was a good building. But, you know, if you invest in the longer term and you also, in a lot of cases, don't use a lot of debt, it's hard to get into trouble. And where you get into trouble is when you borrow too much money against your real estate and think that it's never going to go down. And like what happened in the late 80s was that values dropped by 50 percent when debt levels were at 75. So now the banks own the real estate. And we're not about to see that, but that goes back to you need to look at the underlying real estate. It's not the real estate that usually gets you in trouble. It's the debt. There's actually a related question on debt in the inbox. This is a perfect uh, timing on it. The question is, you know, given the current interest rate environment being at, you know, at historic or near historic lows, will there be a temptation to lever up, which would then, of course, lead to the problems you just mentioned? I think there will be a temptation to lever up, but I don't think you'll be allowed to go to the levels that it was. And also that, you know, there's still there's a lot more discipline in the lending as well as in the real estate industry that you didn't have before. So most of the real estate is now held by institutional owners or REITs that have a certain discipline and they also are limited. Even REITs are limited in how much they can borrow. So I just don't think we're going to see what we saw in the past. 
That said, a lot of times when people want to lend money, they, they'll lend it and the real estate people will usually take it. But in general, I don't see it happening. Careful, Paul. You're talking to two lenders, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and no, we agree. And, and we agree. And we agree. I mean, certainly well, you've got some credit. Yeah, um, there's discipline in like there's a lot of discipline in the market that wasn't there in the past. I'm I, I'm fortunate. I work with a number of individuals that were around when the CMBS market was strong in Canada, and they always joke about in 2008, 2009, we basically had no defaults. And when they went back to kind of bring the market to the U.S., the U.S. was saying, "What do you mean you have no defaults?" Because this, you know, the U.S. was way more aggressive back then. And quite frankly, the Canadian maybe it's just a you know our instinct as Canadians, we were just never as aggressive, right? So yeah. and I think that's even more true today. I want to take us now to kind of you're you have a bit of a bigger role. You're not just Canadian focused, you're focused, I think you had mentioned Ireland, UK, Canada, and the US. I'm wondering if you have some insights just about the distinct, what maybe what you found interesting being exposed to now different markets and maybe how their investment strategies might change based on where you're looking. Well, what was interesting is more the commonality of what was happening in the various markets during the pandemic. And it was really how different asset classes still stayed in favor. So industrial is still in favor and industrial is still being leased. And so I I think what the global view almost shows you're not alone. Like sometimes when you're looking at Canadian assets or a certain Canadian city, you think it's just happening here. Well, it's happening everywhere. And this one was probably a classic where this is a global thing and it was affecting everybody and how they went to work and what was going on with the assets. So I think that lens for me and for our team was very helpful because you just didn't feel you were all alone. And then the other thing that I would say is that you just get, uh, you kind of touched on it, you get a, a sense for the different cultures and what the U.S. is more aggressive and they will do more deals. Canadians are more cautious and you just start to recognize those things. And also, I guess, you know, further on, I just think we've got great people who know what they're doing and we've, I've developed great friendships over the time. The other thing I thought I'd mention that was, it's been really what I've been working on for the last few years is not about buying real estate as much as about buying companies. And what I, I find there is that you're buying cultures and you're buying people. And that to me is a real, it's been a real fun thing to do to get to know people and to then to bring them into your company and say, we're going to try and grow this thing together. So the personal connection is also somewhat universal. Real estate people in Canada and, and the U.S. are considered different. And in the UK and Ireland, they're considered different. Over there, they're called property people. But every time... Anyone in investments talks about real estate or property people, there's always a little smirk on their face saying, well, that's the real estate people. You know, they they're aggressive. They're going to try and get things done. And that's somewhat a global phenomenon. A property people. I, I like it. I hope you don't ever forget who you're talking to and mix up the terminology from the different cultures. But I've not heard that before. I hope everybody else enjoyed that. You mentioned looking at your your asset base in a, a global context and how you might rebalance it what about on a an asset mix going forward to adapt to what will be a post covid world that will likely be a little bit different from the current one what would be your longer term plans in terms of rebalancing where you're allocating your resources I would say we've always been exposed to the four asset classes. And I I would think that the only thing that what I would say what's more in favor going forward is industrial. But that was something we were seeing prior to COVID. But to me, 
online delivery and warehousing is going to be more important. There's going to be more of it built. So I would think, you know, a slightly higher emphasis on that. And then I'm still a believer in the office market. I know there's a lot of discussion that the office market is going to be in trouble. I don't see it that way. I think what's going to happen and on a, a very simplified basis is that what there will, will be people that will work remotely and that may reduce the amount of office space you need by 20%, but they will need bigger distances and that will increase the office space by 20%. So you're going to stay neutral. I also find it interesting just more from the standpoint of what companies are saying. In some cases, companies are saying, you know, we're happy that our people can work from home. And really, they don't even have the capacity to bring them back because they don't have the space to bring them back. And yet, you know, that's to me, this is a physical problem. We, we have to solve it. But I think the days are gone where we're going to be jamming a lot of people into open space. And it was something I never believed in in the first place. You know, that leads my leads me to think, about how you're managing your team through this current situation. What leadership is so critical in crises, and this is so unique because we're not in the same office and you know we're all sitting in our child's bedroom talking into a computer. Like, how are you managing that with your team, and how are you keeping spirits up? And and I think maybe even more critically, how are you maintaining a culture through this situation? That's a great question, and I, I think that culture is a thing that we have built, and we get the benefit of having built it. But on a go-forward basis, if you were starting from this position to grow a culture, I think it'd be very difficult. So I'm hopeful to get back to do that. But the thing that we, we've tried to do is to put the employee first, and it's really about employee safety, and then trying to keep the business going. Those have been the two driving factors of what we've been trying to do as a business. Then lots of town halls. My favorite, though, is kind of the random outreach, which is to try and drop in on a Zoom call with somebody or a Teams call and just find out how people are doing and not talk about business per se. But what are you doing to stay active? How are you managing? Are you OK? And I think we're all we're all struggling with it. It's not easy, but I, I really like the and I've, I've always done it is if I'm thinking about somebody, I used to call them and leave them a voicemail. Now, if I'm thinking about somebody, I try and connect with them online. And this can be an employee, can be an old friend, but I think it's trying to continue to support one another when you don't have people face-to-face. But it is, like, I'm a people person, and this has been very difficult for me. Well, one other big advantage is there's no lawnmowers going through the office that uh, interrupt the calls you're trying to have, which would be nice. So we're kind of looking at the world in a, you know, where we are now, we're all at home. Everybody's watching this at home, very likely. And we compare that to our previous life where everybody's in the office, but there should be an in-between period. You know, you're hearing about rotating office shifts, or maybe you work Monday, Tuesday, and then you're off the rest of the week working at home. How would you see GWL transitioning, you know, working through implementing, you know, culture and camaraderie while you have everybody somewhat fragmented in a, from a team unity perspective? Well, you know, to be honest, we'll do the best we can. I mean, what I find personally is not having that, you lose something in this conversation. You know, what I miss is kind of the face-to-face and the connection. And I think in order to really build culture, you need to get back to that. You can do the best you can by having these calls. But to be honest, I don't think it's easy. And I'm, I'm just hopeful that we can create things where we can get back to face-to-face contact. I mean, you're talking about something that's very complicated. There'll be procedures and things that we put in place in our buildings and in our workplace, but I'm hoping that, like, to me, eventually we should get back to the way life was, and I'm looking forward to that. 
Paul, I've got one more question, I think, and then we're going to, we've got about 15 minutes left and then we're going to try to get to some Q&A. My last question is, is just about, is kind of aligned about getting back to regular life. When do you think you're going to get back to investing again? Do you have any sense, you know, what's your thoughts on how and when the world's going to start, the, the hamster wheel will start going again? Well, I tell you, we're still investing. I mean, uh, we've been looking at deals mainly in the U.S., but also in Canada and a couple deals that we've done in the UK. So there's still investments happening and there is still leasing happening. And you mentioned this earlier. What I like being able to talk to people about is growth and doing deals and having fun. And so to me, that's an important thing to continue to remind people of is even though we're talking about the procedures to get people back to the office or the procedures that we're going to get and we, we can't quite get everybody back, Talk about the fun things. Talk about things to look forward to is when we are back or the fact that we're still growing. I mean, even we're out there, we're looking to raise capital right now to go buy things. We were talking to people about there are opportunities out there to do things. And that starts to make you feel more normal. When all you're dealing with are negative stuff, it's hard to get excited about it. And so talk to people about that. And same thing, even on your day to day, you know, schedule time where you're going to go do something that you, you're not on a screen. We've got to figure out stuff like that and try to move past it, have things to look forward to. Even if it's lately, I've been looking forward to going to get a coffee. Just, I get to go and drive and get a coffee. I look forward to that. And it's trying to be positive even when all this stuff is going on. And I would say that's the thing I found in, in other times, another crisis, that you, you just try to stay positive. It's, you, know, you can't change your environment. You can change your attitude. So it's, it's all about attitude and trying to have fun. Yeah, Paul, I couldn't agree more. I also can't wait to go get a coffee, but more importantly, I can't wait to do it with somebody that's not within my immediate family, <laughs> an acquaintance. That would be that would be very very nice. But you know, we're not quite there yet, obviously. Yeah. This has been great. Obviously, going over you know the past, present, and future. We're going to spend the last little bit here just doing some rapid fire questions from the audience because sure. there's always great questions that do come from there. We've got one here that would tie into the conversation you're having with Aaron about about long term vision. As this goes back uh, quite a bit in the GWL history book, but why did GWL enter the multi-res sector and grow a large portfolio in the latter 1990s when virtually all corporate owners in Canada had exited this property class? And I will preface it by saying the answer should be obvious and that who does not wish they'd not bought a bunch of apartments in the late 90s. But that, of course, is, you know, looking backwards when it's easy to see how well they've done. So what would you say at the time yeah. that the reason was to get into an asset class that was not showing a lot of favor? So uh, we had done a fair bit of research on it. And what I found interesting was, and like I'm at this point, I'm coming as an office guy into the market. And I go, well, the office market, let's just say we're 10% vacant. In the multi-res, we were three and there were wait lists to get in. So initially I went, okay, well, why don't I like this asset class? The next thing that we talked about is that the asset class was linked more to demographics than the business cycle. So we started looking at the data said, well, this is because we have young people that need apartments. We also saw that empty nesters going to rent apartments. So we then said this asset class is somewhat based on demographics. Meanwhile, office and industrial is definitely based on economics. And then retail is based on consumer spend. So it was very different. And so we liked it as a mix and being the mix that was related to demographics. 
There's a question here on big box retail, Paul. And the question is, you know, how do you see big box retail playing itself out and can it survive? And I'm going to lead you into, is there a potential for intensification of those sites? And I guess, does GWL have that sort of plan in the horizon? We've been more of a needs-based retail. And so we're, we're not exposed to that as much. What I find, and, and this is more my experience with real estate people, we can get creative. So what I have seen is I've seen department stores converted into call centers. I have seen department stores divided up and to become multiple uses. As you mentioned, there could be an opportunity for certain mall spaces to be more online related, but getting goods to the customer. It can also be, as you indicated, a possibility of knocking them down and turning them into apartments. And then when I get, you know, I like to think outside the box. I also have told people that sometimes it could be a big paintball playground It could also be a place for dogs to doggy daycare and dog runs. But real estate people can get creative. And I do know that there's a lot more. It seems that everyone's buying a dog during the pandemic and the dog needs to run. And sometimes if you had a big open department store and you had it full of dogs, they might get a lot of running. So you got to get creative when it comes to real estate. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, if you look at you know Toronto hundred years ago, virtually every building would have changed its use multiple times since then, and people profited along the way. So, you know, the old adage "adapt or die." The question I want yeah. to ask the audience here, you know, this would go back to you know your trily days when you were brand new in the industry. So, you know, it's been a while since that was where you were in your career, but obviously you are connected to it. So, this is from a person I assume who would be at a similar point in their career right now. And the question is, you know, should I go get an MBA or a degree in real estate? Or should I jump into the industry for junior analyst positions? What would you recommend to somebody with where we are right now in the cycle? For me, if you like the business, I would get into it. What I found, the reason I did an MBA was I felt when people looked at my resume, they would see me as an engineer and wouldn't be able to make the leap to business. So I felt it was important. And, I, and even at the time, I really didn't know I liked real estate per se. So the thing is, what my thing is, if you like the business, then I think you should try it on. And if you feel you need it, then you you can go back. But I, you know, I think there's a lot of things about career is trying things. And then if you like them, make changes. But a lot of times in early in the career, you got to figure out what you don't like. And I can tell you from my standpoint was, I really didn't like working as an engineer. I didn't like being an account manager at the bank. And so I did like real estate. And that also, one of the reasons that was kind of interesting when I reflect on my time with the bank for a year, which was the Royal Bank, what they told me is that when you're an account manager, you're like a cheerleader. And I never wanted to be a cheerleader. I always wanted to be a player. And that really turned me off banking. And so that's another, just another story for me. But my idea is that you try the business if you like it, and then you can decide to go do an MBA. I look for people that really like real estate and not necessarily look to their education as much. But somebody who's interested in flipping houses tells me they know how to look at an office building as well. On the same line, Paul, and you'd kind of mentioned it before about if you're changing jobs, you've got to make sure your wife's happy, your kids are happy, and you like your boss. I'm assuming over the last you know number of years in your current role and previous roles with Great West Life, you've had opportunities to move. And so maybe I'm just asking, why would you move at times and why do you decide not to? Yeah, that grass is not always green on the other side comes to mind, but maybe just have advice for those that are in the middle of their career and you know, how they should go through that decision-making process. 
Well, I guess the, um, and this is something that I paid a lot of attention to throughout my career. I would usually define what I was looking for next. And so the whole thing was that right now I've got a global role and I, you know, I had been looking for a global role. And if Great West Light didn't present me a global role, I might have gone elsewhere. So the thing is, my advice to the, you know, somebody partway through the careers, define what you're looking for. And the story I usually say is I'm, I really like, you know, I like clothing and I like suits. So over the years, I've said to people, if I'm shopping and I need a black suit, so I define that I want a black suit and I want it to be double breasted and a certain look, and I come back with a blue suit, then I've screwed up. So my whole thing is if you define your job, then you shouldn't be upset the one you take. And then you stop chasing things that you shouldn't look at. So, you know, a lot of times I listen to people, they go, well, I think I'm going to take that interview. And I go, well, is that what you want? It's nice to be asked, but if it's not what you want, don't take it. And then one does come along that you've defined is what you want. You say, I really want that job. And it's a better way to approach it. It's like making a shopping list and rather than just going to the grocery store. Paul, we've got one last question and then we're going to give it back to George. And it's one that's difficult to get right. But the good news is with this particular question, you don't have to get it right all the time to make money in real estate. But it's timing. When should people look to start putting money into real estate in a meaningful way? Are they talking commercial real estate? Is this, is this just in general? Commercial, yeah. The, the kind of investment that uh, you know that we all do. Maybe not at okay. the level uh, you're doing it, but uh, your average investor. When should they start trying to buy real estate again? I would say that you should be, well, the rule of thumb is that you should have 10% of your wealth in income producing real estate. I mean, most pension funds run that. So I don't become then a market timer on it. But to me, having a, a portfolio where you have a certain amount in real estate is a logical thing. All the pension funds do it. And the, the, what I point out to people is if some of the largest pension funds in the world say you should have a 10 to 15% weighting in real estate, you probably should have it in your own portfolio. So, And how you go about it, likely for most people, it's either to buy some REITs or to invest in some of the funds that we have that are sold through Candlelight, Great West Life, and London Life distribution channels. But to me, it's not a market timing thing. Real estate should be a portion of your portfolio and should stick that way. Good advice. I like that. Paul, we've run out of time. On behalf of Adam and myself, I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to, to ask you these questions. Now we're going to throw it back to George. The virtual podium is yours. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. We've run out of time. It was a great, great conversation. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining Aaron and Adam. We sincerely appreciate having you with us and providing a, a most insightful discussion on some of the impacts of COVID on the Canadian real estate market, on your own experiences in the real estate profession over the years, your thoughts on the past and how you see things as you look forward. We really, again, thank you for taking the time today to join us. As a reminder to everyone, there will be a follow-up email tomorrow that will include a link to view a recording of today's presentation. If you found this event useful, please share it with your colleagues. Once you leave the webcast, a short survey will pop up in your browser window. We would greatly appreciate your feedback on this event. Next week, on Wednesday at 3.30, we will continue our Thought Leadership webinar series with our guest being Blair Welsh, co-founder of Slate. 
headquartered in Toronto. Blair and his team have built a global portfolio of $6.2 billion of assets under management across Canada, the United States, and Europe over the past 15 years. Don't miss this most insightful conversation with another industry veteran. So on behalf of the Canadian Real Estate Forum's team, remain healthy and safe. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.